Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Hello, and welcome to Ask Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello. So I think this is our probably our final episode on proto-Protestant heresies, because we're gonna get through to the main event himself, Mr. Martin Luther, Dr. Yes. Martin Luther. He's probably he doctor. Is, yeah. yeah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Although, then he also gets excommunicated, so... But you yeah, I mean, keep you get the degree. Education. Yes, yeah, I think okay. you get to keep your... I mean, you know, yes, like... <laughs> yes. Um, it's one of those things where if you earn the diploma, you should just get it, I think. You do so, get it. Yeah. Yes. So I'll say tonight we're going to get through to your friend and mine, Dr. Martin Luther. Yes. Now, we do want to be fair, he probably was not our friend because he no. was rapidly anti Semitic, <laughs> among other issues. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> nobody's <not> perfect. <laughs> going to address that in this episode, yes. <laughs> right. Um But we do want to acknowledge this, right? That unlike certain other Martin Luthers who less names were king. Um, yes, Junior, who were also doctors and reverends, um, that yes, this one had some issues with certain things. Yes, um, I was as I, I was mean, telling Jesse equality. <laughs> yeah, as I was saying before we started um, recording, uh, it was I was I think I was in high school before I realized there were two people, and one of them was named Martin Luther King, and one of them was named Martin Luther. Ah, yes. I think yes. because I was handed some sheet music that Martin Luther had composed. And Ooh. I was like, wait, Martin Luther King wrote music? <laughs> I mean, maybe he did, but he didn't write that song. Right. Yes. And I was like, this sounds very old. I thought he lived in the 60s. Yep. Yes. So. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, a few, few hundred years earlier. Yes. Um, but yeah, the we will. The state of medieval education in America is just deplorable. Yes, unfortunately. I mean, we should be fair. So, um, some caveats for this episode. One of them is that we aren't really covering Luther. We're going to get to him and we will talk briefly about him. But th we're, this is not an episode on Luther. We're really talking about Hussites. We're going to finish up the Lollards. Yeah. Um, and it is also worth pointing out that it's kind of a stereotype. But it's also very true that medievalists don't talk about Luther. Um, <laughs> it's this weird thing. So medievalists generally do not talk about the Reformation. If you deal with the Reformation, you're an early modernist. Oh. Yeah, um, okay. Yes. Medievalists deal with the Counter-Reformation, which happens at the same time, obviously. But medievalists are dealing with sort of the church answering back with other reform movements that happen with sort of the responses to things like Martin Luther and the Reformation. But medievalists tend to avoid the Reformation entirely. And so this really funny thing, you can get um, books on, you know, medieval Christianity. And um, I mean, there are a lot of good ones. We have mentioned some of them in the past couple episodes, right? Or medieval heresies or this and that. Um, and Martin Luther would not be mentioned. Um other things going on at that time will be mentioned, but he will not be mentioned, or he'll barely be mentioned. <laughs> the word Reformation won't be mentioned either. Reform oh will be discussed. Okay. Yes, and this is the extent to which he is a f fully separate subject. Um, 
but it does bring us to the idea of reform, right? So the Reformation is, of course, so named because it's the idea that this is when this big reform happened. But it is worth pointing out, all of the people we have talked about have thought of themselves as reformers, right? Um, many of the heresies we've talked about, actually, um, some of them have just thought of themselves, you know, if you go all the way back to, like, to the Gnostics, you're just getting... Um, you know, as we sort of discussed, like different senses of orthodoxy, right? So there wasn't even really a sense yet of what was going to become the dominant form of Christianity. But as you move forward in time and you have a dominant Christianity that's out there, um, you start to get the splits as we taught, right? You get you start to get schisms. There'll frequently be a council where they try and write an ecumenical council where mm -hmm. they try and solve problems. And they, of course, won't exactly. They'll decide what the dogmatic line is going to be and someone else will split off. But, you know, a lot of times then within movements, you do get reformers. And eventually, of course, um, you do get, right, the Cathars, the Waldensians, who we've talked about. Um, who, the Waldensians really are reformers. I mean, very clearly, that's sort of the goal. Um, and that becomes true that as you move into proto-Protestant heresies like, heresies like Wycliffe and the Wycliffeites, or also known as the Lollards, mm -hmm. um, they are all intent on reforming the church. Right. And there's the sense that the church has become, um, you know, greedy and bloated and things. Right. <laughs> there is a sort of uh, idea right out there um, and that all this luxury is not good. All the power. Right. These movements are also very political, but in in sort of obvious ways, which is why the sort of interesting fact that that we discussed. Right. That um, even St. Francis, who. Right, the Waldensians come up with this idea of sort of poverty, they are heretics, and then Francis will manage to get his order created, right? He does acknowledge the authority of the Pope, basically, mm -hmm. but he can't get a straightforward apostolic rule, even he can't get an apostolic rule approved, right? He, uh, the rule, he wants his rule for his order to be, we talked about this last time, right, the stuff that Christ sort of says to the apostles in Matthew when he sends them out, right? He's like, you have a pair of sandals, you have a stick, and like, this is what you get. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that that was not allowed, right? That this is a level of poverty um, that sort of can't be seen as something they that should be emulated. And there sure. are obviously huge problems in this, and there are there's a section of the Franciscans who are going to end up being considered heretics for a variety of reasons. We might have, we've talked about them before and we might have more, but um, they, so they sort of go off and eventually Bonaventure comes in and they kind of, they have to reform their order. But in this case, reform isn't the type of reform that Francis had on mind and that others had in mind. It's sort of away from a lot of those ideas, mm -hmm. right? And the Pope like passes the bull where he's like, you Franciscans own stuff. Previously, the Vatican had said that they technically owned whatever Franciscans used. They're like, nope, you own stuff. Everyone owns stuff. You have to own stuff, right? So there's no true poverty. Um, yeah, so so uh, there's this tension. So there's this tension. There's a long-standing tension here in the church. Um, and we have talked before. We talked many episodes ago, uh, sort of near the beginning. So it's probably somewhere in the first ten. We'll put the number up online. But... Um, about monastic orders mm -hmm. um, and we had talked about sort of asceticism so the early desert fathers um and the ideas of sort of um asceticism start way back right um 
there are some of the founding sort of found really founding ideas philosophies of the church but then there is this tension because to be an ascetic monk in the desert all on your own <laughs> versus being part of a hierarchy that rules huge areas of land and has armies there is a kind of inherent tension those two things are not alike <laughs> um, and it's hard to unite them under the same flag i guess right right umbrella under the same umbrella um and so you always have this tension and monks of course are supposed to kind of be the ascetic wing the problem is of course they also become the hierarchical wing right mm -hmm. so benedictines for example as you move through time by the like when you get to chaucer um chaucer's prioress is a benedictine and that's very pointed, right? That they're the Benedictine order. People are continuously starting other orders to sort of reform it <laughs> um, because of the sense that they are, they're far too wealthy. You have to be wealthy to join it, right? You have to have a dowry basically to join a Benedictine monastery. Um, and so, and if you don't, then you could technically be a lay brother, for example, which means you would work the land and stuff, but then you, you know, you are not really an equal Mm -hmm. part of the system there um so you know that so the monastery system right the, um, the monastic orders are not really fulfilling that ascetic part of the bargain they are becoming the hierarchy right they are the cardinals and the popes and so on um and meanwhile you have priests who for a long time can marry and have families and are allowed to sort of own things and all this stuff but sort of ironically poor parish priests you know they're kind of the working grudges of what's going on um and that starts to be a problem <laughs> in different ways right and eventually mm -hmm. you get the sort of uniting where priestly celibacy right before monastic celibacy was always a thing but priestly was not and so we'll probably have a whole episode more about that but um where you that's one of the reforms that happens right um and we talked about that sort of the East-West schism, right? That Eastern Orthodox, you can have marriage. Um, and that is because you could. Yeah. Right? Until sort of the thousands. <laughs> um, when there is then this decision in the West. So priestly celibacy becomes a thing, right? So the monastic orders and the priestly orders, everyone has to be celibate. Um, that's an attempted reform. Right, to mm -hmm. try and get back to this apostolic truth where Christ and the apostles were celibate. Um, but of course, you know, so there are these reforms that happen throughout, but they're never quite enough for people, for everyone, right? <laughs> so for some people, they're fine, and for other people, they're not enough. And that is why, of course, you continue to get reformers like the Waldensians. Um, and then, of course, in England, there's sort of this big surprise that England hasn't been having a lot of this stuff. But in some ways, because they, this is unfair, and so, but they are kind of the backwater of Europe. They are extremely impressive when it comes to building a nation state. But in other mm -hmm. ways, they're very much behind the cultural curve. Um, but Oxford and Cambridge, we sort of talk about in our university episodes, they're a little bit late. They're, they're very early, but I mean, there are already universities in the other parts of Europe by the time they show up and really get going. Um, but like once they two or three, like just a few, 
Yes, but you know, but that's <laughs> sort of the point, right? That um, by the time they really get going, um, other parts of Europe have had this, but England mm-hmm. catches up pretty quick, right? Because once you've got your own homegrown universities where you have people who are thinking about things and you maybe have people coming from abroad to go to your universities and to think about things, mm-hmm. suddenly you, you get influxes of new ideas, right? And so someone like Wycliffe, of course, is at Oxford. Um, it's a perfect sort of proving ground for um, new ideas, right? Sure. That's what universities are. And this is this definitely helps England shoot forward <laughs> on the scale of reform from not having had a lot of, not just native-grown heresies, but not really having had issues with heresies before so much, to suddenly spawning sort of the, the big one in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, or one of the big ones. So, um, and we discussed the fact, right, that they stick around. So here's the next part of this, right? So we've mentioned a lot of things in Reform that, of course, Luther is going to go along with. Wycliffe comes up with them. The Hussites we're going to talk about, they also go along with a lot of these things. Um, But the sort of um, interesting aspect is that by the time the Reformation, with the big capital letters, comes along being called the Reformation, because, of course, it's the one that finally manages to create its own church, Mm -hmm. right? You will have a separate Protestant church that, of course, will splinter, you know. I mean, you're going to get a lot of different Protestant churches, but you are going to have a separate church that is not under the auspices of the papacy, that papacy, that cannot be considered um, a heresy. I mean, the papacy is going to consider it a heresy, (laughs) but it's not going to matter, There are going to be a ton of wars. We talked about the Albigensian Crusade. There are going to be a ton of wars, but now we're going to have governments to fight back. I mean, these are Mm going to be political wars as well as religious wars. Um, So, this being said, right, the Lollards, um, a lot of them are going to live to see this happen. I mean, they're going to live to see Anglicanism happen. Mm -hmm. Um, Right, they do not get totally stomped out before that. And we're going to talk about the Hussites, who are going to live to see Lutheranism happen. Right. Um, But they are not necessarily all going to fold into these new religions. Right? So a lot of Lollards, Wycliffeites, are going to want to stay Lollards. A lot of Hussites are going to stay Hussites. um, Because they, ultimately, right, they see themselves as kind of their own reform not as a step on the way to the reformation which is how they are frequently seen and how they are definitely seen by the reformation itself right who look back particularly at people who were martyred right um Wycliffe himself is not but his some of his followers certainly are Jan Hus will himself be martyred um and these people are all looked at as proto-protestant martyrs but Um, they see themselves as their own thing, right? So some of them will become, you know, mainstream Protestant, we could say, but some of them Mm -hmm. will not. Um, At the same time, the Reformation, right? So people who are creating and becoming Lutheran and then eventually Anglican, while they are going to very much celebrate a lot of these martyrs as proto-Protestant martyrs, I mean, they're not going to call them proto, as Protestant martyrs. Um, They are not going to necessarily celebrate Wycliffeitism 
or mm-hmm. Hasidism, um, because they actually tend to see those as potentially still too connected to the past. Mm. Right? Which is to say as not having formed an official break. Right. Right. So um, they're, they're almost still too Catholic, basically. Yes. yes. Even when they're not at all Catholic, <laughs> that is still kind of the yeah, impression. Kind of, yes. Yeah, kind of ironic. Yes. But. And that, of course, becomes the interesting thing, is that ultimately the Reformation is not actually a Reformation at all. It is another schism. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but... The reformation, you know, the people who created it saw themselves as reforming the church in the same way all of these other people saw themselves as reforming the church. It's just that finally it wasn't exactly, I mean, you can certainly still look at it that way, but it is also a schism, right? Sure. Um, and yes, the others sort of ultimately weren't, whether because of political power or any number of reasons, right? Um, the others were, were not full breaks because they sort of couldn't be. Um, all right, so so this is sort of the commentary right, about reform and about why the Reformation um, both is and isn't, right? And this is one of the reasons why medievalists, I think, avoid it, because there is a real sense for medievalists that, in fact, it's not a Reformation at all. It's something new. Mm-hmm. I mean, it comes out of the Middle Ages, so it's, it's not new out of whole cloth by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a full break, right? Um, in a way that a lot of these other movements are not. So there are a lot of reformers. Martin Luther is himself a reformer, um, but the Reformation then brings something new, right? Um, So, yeah, so the Middle Ages tends to stop at the Reformation. (laughs) And this is the real reason why the 1500s is the break. Uh Aha. Because 1517, of course, is going to be the moment. So... Or the beginning of the moment. All right. Um, So a quick just reminder, we're going to sort of go through as we talk about this. Um, Wycliffe, right? So he is in Oxford. Um, We talked last time about him and all the stuff he sort of did. He is very clearly proto-Protestant. We get vernacular. uh, We get a lot of things, right? Anti-sort of clerical, anti-papacy. And definitely right transubstantiation is the thing that kind of loses him his supporters finally right um up until that point though he'd had a lot of supporters um particularly because of course and this is what eventually is going to cause the break in england um a lot of people in addition to liking some of his reforms right um very much like the idea of secular control over the church which is to say that england should be in control of its own church and not have to answer to the Pope, right? Which is eventually, the... I think, what they wound up with. Yes, that is exactly so, what they wound up with. Because <laughs> the Queen Queen Elizabeth is the, the head of the yeah. Church of England, right? Yep. Yeah, starting with Henry VIII, who, who does that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and we will talk briefly about him when we get there. But, <laughs> yes. Um, I just love that political thing where he's like, can I get divorced? And the Pope says, no. And he's like, all right, I'm starting a new church. Yep. The Pope goes, well, who's going to be in charge of it? And he's like, up, oh, me. Yes. I mean, <laughs> it, feels, it was the obvious It feels like an Eddie Izzard routine. It does. It does. But, you know, hopefully we've seen how sort of like with Wycliffe, for example, that has been really built into the equation. I mean, even before mm-hmm. Wycliffe, but in England, 
Right. But that has already been broached as a reform. Right. Secular control. And Wycliffe didn't invent it, but he, you know, it becomes part of Wallardy in England, right? So mm-hmm. it is, it has been present. It has already been suggested. There are plenty of people who've approved it before. You know, um, there are obviously plenty of people who do not like it. Yeah. Uh, Henry will execute some of them, including some of his very close friends. But there we are. That is how it happens. So um, <laughs> let the rookie win. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so we'll, yeah, we'll get back to this in a sec. But um, anyway, so, you know, he, so Henry has a lot of ground to build on, right? He, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Yeah. But, um, so it's worth pointing out, of course, by the time Henry gets there, it's already been happening. So not just, not just in England. I mean, he's, it's, it's going on. It's already, it's mm-hmm. going on. Okay. So um, here we are. We talked about that. We talked about Old Castle, right? Who false John, Sir John Falstaff, who was named for Sir John Fastolf, the real guy, um, was originally is actually based on Sir John Oldcastle. Um, this is Shakespeare, of course, Shakespeare's character. Um, and Oldcastle was in fact a lollard and part of a rebellion, um, and he was friends with the king, and all that is true. Um, but I, you know, it, maybe his family complained. It's sort of you know, why did Shakespeare decide to change it? But something clearly happened. Shakespeare decided to change it. At that point, of course, when Shakespeare is writing, Old Castle is seen as a Protestant martyr, right? <laughs> so his reputation has gone from being a heretic to being reclaimed. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so anyway, so and it's if he was Festo. if he was a martyr, you can kind of see why they might be uneasy mixing him up with Sir John Falstaff. Yes, and it. I mean, and to be fair to Falstaff, he should be his own guy. I mean, he's yeah. a phenomenal character. And we should not really be worried about that fact. Um, it's just a bit of trivia that is helpful when, like, lines, like I said last time, right, um, my old lad of the castle, right? Yeah. Uh, so these certain lines that, that still work, but that Shakespeare left in, but that, you know, that's sort of our reminder that that's, mm-hmm. that's where he originally came from. And, of course, Shakespeare's audience would have known that when they heard it. We don't, but it doesn't matter. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't matter at all to the character. Anyway. Yeah, so moving on. Um, the reason we want to remind ourselves, though, about Wycliffe and so on is that um, the papal schism, so we, there are a lot of schisms, boy. Uh, we talked about a lot of them, and here's the other one. We keep bringing it up. The papal schism is the one where suddenly there are two popes, then for a while there are three popes, right? So there's the Avignon papacy. They're trying to get a pope back in Rome. It doesn't work. <laughs> and then they try and get a pope that everyone can agree on, and that also doesn't work. So then there are three popes for a while. Okay, um, so it's a big it mess. It feels like too many cooks. Yes. I'm going to say yeah. it. But it's a reminder, right, this, this is the politics. These are the politics yeah. that are going on, right? France, if you have the Pope, you have control over the Pope, basically, right? The, the Popes at this point are not super strong, is usually the word that is used. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are kind of weak-minded and otherwise. I mean, they're not stupid. It's not that. But they are, anyway, they're in the, under the control of various secular leaders is the point uh and so you know in avignon that of course is for france rome um you know so it's sort of where do you align politically well england follows rome (laughs) and so uh czech students so we're talking really about bohemia speaking of shakespeare seacoast of bohemia winter's tale um we're talking about bohemia which is essentially part of czech republic today um so czech but in, at this point in the Middle Ages, 
So we were talking like the 1300s into the 1400s and then into the 1500s. Um, it's Czech, but a lot of German immigrants crossing the border. Um, and for a while, um, just because sort of how Bohemia is being run and the, the papacy itself, um, German clerics are in most of the sort of high ecclesiastical positions in this area. Okay. Um, because the, that's they're the ones who are educated. I mean, they're coming out of the universities, they come in, they sort of, you know, take these places. Um, and as the 1300s get going, um, there starts to be a bit of a backlash to this, where a lot of people, you know, want Czech clerics in some of these positions. Um, there starts to be a feeling great tension <laughs> between okay. the Czech and German language peoples of this area. Um, meanwhile, the because of the papal schism, um, Czech students who'd been at Paris uh, head across the channel to Oxford, right? Which oh, at this point is okay. also a great university. It's up and coming. It's a place to be. And um, England, because England is with Rome, right? So they're avoiding France, <laughs> is the point. <laughs> so they leave Paris, they move on to Oxford, and they run into Wycliffe's ideas. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the thing everybody is worried about, that they'll send their kids to college and they'll get radicalized. Yes. The interesting thing is that because of this tension between sort of the Czech language and German language peoples of Bohemia, um, and again, a lot of, you know, the Czech peoples are sort of the local and the German are potentially immigrants. But of course, after a few generations, that is no longer necessarily true. But there is this huge tension. And because of this sort of growing desire for Czech clerics to be in these higher positions, there is a growing reform movement at home. Mm -hmm. And part of this reform movement, of course, is the idea of secular, more secular control. Why does the papacy keep putting in these German clerics? We want local Czech clerics. Sure. Right? In ecclesiastical positions, right? Up in, up in the hierarchy, basically. Um, as archbishops and stuff is the point, right? Whoever. Overseeing stuff. You know, in, in nice plum, plum postings. All right. So, um, so there's this reform movement that's going at home. Yes. And meanwhile, yes, your students are going to Oxford and getting radicalized by Wycliffe's ideas. And they bring them back to Bohemia where they run into the homegrown movement. Um, and eventually um, you get some other fun stuff. Uh, Richard II of England, phenomenal Ooh. play by Shakespeare. But, yes. <laughs> um, Mary's Anne of Bohemia. Um, this isn't the wife. She ends up dying. They're, or apparently I think a really good marriage, but she dies and he's super sad. Um, and then he ends up getting married. That's just a political marriage to someone else who's she's basically a kid and they definitely did not consummate the marriage or whatever um but i think she kind of remained she like really loved him so apparently he was really nice oh. to her um yeah like probably the father she technically had but didn't have because when you're royalty mm -hmm. god only knows what's you know whatever um so you know she and i think she didn't get remarried ever after he died and by dad i mean of course was killed um <laughs> was executed by soldiers of Richard, another henry. henry the fourth Yes. At that point. Yes. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, but yes, great play. But his 
but anyway, Richard's wife is Anne of Bohemia. So England, so that's another reason to go to Oxford, right? Because there's this connection between Bohemia and England, right? So he marries Anne of Bohemia. All right. So there is this connection. Um, so Wycliffe's ideas get to Prague by the early 1400s. Um, and probably even before that, you know, they're, they're moving around. And as I said, there's already this homegrown sort of movement. Um, and Jan Hus, that's Jan, of course, with a J. <laughs> um, is, he's like 1369 to 1415. Um, he is, he's a reformer. He's a homegrown Czech reformer. He is super into this. He runs into Wycliffe's stuff and he's just, you know, mm -hmm. that's it. Giant explosions happen. Um, and so this, this is the beginning. They'll be called the Hussites, which I have mentioned them a lot. So here they are. Um, and basically Wycliffe's writings plus Huss's leadership really gain momentum. Um, and so the big things, again, right, the reforming of the clergy, which is, as political, I mean, it's, it is about also, again, sort of money and greed and things like this, but it is also very, very political, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, local representation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all right, so the reforming of the clergy, vernacular scripture, right? So vernacular translations, that's another big thing. Okay. Which we have talked about, of course, and that's, again, right, that goes to a sort of... Um, what we would probably call a democratic <laughs> sort of view of religion, right? That everyone, mm -hmm. sh these things should be accessible to everyone. That everyone should be allowed to read sculpture and sort of interpret it for themselves if they want to, which of course others would consider dangerous. Um, and remember that it's not technically, you know, it isn't outlawed. <laughs> um, the church has not condemned vernacular texts, but. Right. Right. Um, and obviously today, I mean, masses are done in local languages. So it's not. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, that was it's, that took until Vatican two, though, didn't it? Yes. Yeah. One hundred. Oh, yeah. One hundred percent. I mean, it takes forever. But um, the but it was it was never sort of officially not allowed. Yeah. I mean, Latin was the I don't mean services, but scripture itself. Right. Um, it wasn't it didn't have to be in Latin. <laughs> It just, it was, right? Cause I was going to say, like, the Catholic Church is the only organization in the world that's like, we need to think this over for 500 years. Yes. Let's not be too hasty. <laughs> you know, the point is what it always is, which is that um, only control. the educated, yes, are allowed to read it and understand it and interpret it. And yes, and therefore you keep control. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you know, look at how many Protestant churches there are right um if you really let people do everything for themselves you do end up with a lot of different churches mm -hmm. but that's okay like arguably that's fine right <laughs> out of curiosity um how much latin do you need to read the new testament oh well the vulgate is honestly quite legible um this is church latin of course this is medieval latin um some Hmm, how to put it? Let's see. Basically, if you can read classical texts, you can definitely read you can definitely read the Vulgate. The Vulgate is not difficult. Um the vocabulary can be weird just because, you know, the Bible's got a weird mm -hmm. vocabulary sometimes, but um linguistically the Vulgate is not difficult. Um there are medieval Latin texts that 
are difficult, but those are specific. I mean, those, you know, some people are better at Latin than others. That's, um, but yeah, linguistically, uh, to the point that classicists, um, medieval Latin and, and even New Testament Greek, which of course they're similar in some ways. Um, New Testament Greek is koine, which technically means common, mm -hmm. right? It was the vernacular spoken by the people at the time. Um, these are not taught except in religious institutions generally. Mm -hmm. Because if you learn either of these languages, if you learn Greek, you learn Attic Greek. Yeah. Which is the most complicated form of the language. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It is. That's no, my I history with, yes, I know. Yeah. Yeah, Chi second... I learned Chinese and it was much easier. And I learned yeah. Vietnamese and Thai and they're much easier than Attic Greek. Yes, which tells you something about, tells one, tells our listeners yes. something about these languages. Yes. Um, you know, it's not Sanskrit, but it's, it's tough. Um, yeah. And of course, also, you know, the thing is that um, it's also partly the way it's taught, in fairness. Um, because second semester Greek is where you learn all of the morphology and they make you learn it all, which I mean, if you, it's the assumption that you're learning it to be a classicist, which I was not. I mean, I could have been a classicist. I ended up a medievalist, but, um, you know, it's not just the assumption you want to be a classicist, the assumption that you're going to be a linguist. Mm -hmm. And the thing is like, you, you have to understand it, but you don't have to be a linguist. Um, but you you do you are currently in most cases required to learn all the morphology, which means you have to learn you learn verbs that don't exist. You learn verbs that don't exist because you have to learn where everything came from. Mm -hmm. But it's not the current form that it's used. You're never going to see that form used, right? But they want you to know sure. how it came to be. <laughs> um, it's like reading through the OED to get all of the that background info they give you on yes. why we say you know, woman instead of with man or yes. whatever. And I don't mind some of that, but also I did not personally feel the need to learn all of it. Um, now that being said, you know, it is a famous, even with medievalists, right? It's a fa it's the famous sort of thing. Um, do you want to talk about verb forms or do you want to talk about what a sword looked like in Beowulf, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, these are two different, one of, right, there's linguistic analysis and then there's what is known as today as material culture right sure i do theater i'm a material culture person and that is how i like it right. right so i learn enough to understand what i'm reading but i don't need to know where the verb came from really i just need to know what it means now right fair enough anyway so back to the swords in yes Jan exactly Hus. Yes. So, um, but yeah, but the, the short answer is that, so basically, right, if, if you force to learn these languages, you learn Attic Greek, you learn Classical Latin, which means uh, the time, right, all the hundred, you know, before the year zero, the mm -hmm. first century before the year zero, basically. Um, so that's like Caesar and Cicero and Virgil yes. and Ovid. Um, some of them do cross that zero line. It's worth pointing out. But um, yeah, so that's the complicated Latin um, Attic Greek is the complicated Greek, and at that point you could read. If you learn Attic Greek, you can learn Homer, which is right before. It's simpler. You can do anything that comes after, which is simpler. The New Testament is simpler, right? It's, it's the vernacular, so it's lost mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff that makes Attic Greek so difficult. It's hundreds of years later, 
right? Because um, Attic Greek, we're really talking the 400s before yeah. the year zero. And obviously the New Testament is written after the year zero. Um, so in that hundred sort of after, right? So around the same time as classical Latin. Um, so yeah, it's much simpler. And it is kind of looked down on by classicists. And the same thing is true of the Vulgate when compared to classical Latin, right? It is kind of, I mean, Vulgate, it means vulgar. Mm -hmm. It was the vulgar language, right? Um, and so, um, yes, they, these forms are kind of looked down on, but they're, they're wonderful. You know, they're, it's brilliantly, this stuff is brilliantly written. <laughs> it's brilliantly written. Um, but the language form is slightly simpler than if you have learned, been forced to learn classical stuff. <clears throat> that being said, um, why learn it at all? If people can translate it. Sure. Right? Read it because, in English. Yes. Read it in French. Read it yes. in... Right. And of course, one of the important points is that Latin is not the original language of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Hebrew and Greek are the original language of the Bible. Now, the church dealt with that by, in a number of ways, uh, things like St. Jerome, who in reality, of course, only translated part of it. His parts are quite good, but there are some parts of it that he did not translate personally that are not quite as good. And just by good, I mean accurate, right? Okay. There are some, there are some issues. It's not just that he was having an off day that day. We think no. he had helpers. Oh, he definitely had a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he definitely okay. did not do the whole thing by himself. Like, we know this. But the sort of conceit in the Middle Ages was that uh, he was divinely inspired. And so any what we might call mistakes, in quotes, were not in fact mistakes, but were kind of divinely inspired changes, which uh -huh. I like to personally refer to as like God having kind of updated his work a little bit. Made I some see corrections. It. Yes. Right. Um, now, in some ways, this is perfectly valid, you know, editorial changes, like whatever. That's mm -hmm. and. Even sort of certain mistakes and inaccuracies. I mean, translation is its own wonderful field. But the point is, of course, that um, what is the difference between people reading something in a, you know, English, yes, or French or German translation and talking about it and clerics reading the Latin and talking about it? Even if you read Greek and Hebrew, you know, mm -hmm. um, fine. But then you talk about it based on those. Um but in all of these cases, there are different issues <laughs> with interpretation and with language, right? They each present their own issues. So whether those are issues of translation and interpretation or just interpretation, mm -hmm. um, in which case you're still, but you know, you're still going to have problems because some texts are unclear, words are maybe missing or something because of transcription. So there are always issues. Um, so why not just give everyone a chance to do their own thing? Okay, so um, this is a big thing. The final thing that is different ultimately for Hussites than for Wycliffe, um, because Wycliffe didn't, this just wasn't one of his things. Um, but Hussites eventually, Huss himself is not as insistent on this because he already knows he's going to get in trouble, basically. <laughs> and he does. But one of the things that Hussites are going to do and become very invested in is the frequency of communion. So the reception mm. of the sacrament or the Eucharist. I think we talked before that it was typically pretty infrequent in yes. uh, medieval Europe. Yeah. It was usually once a year, mm -hmm. basically. Like around Easter, for example. Um, and so you do it once a year, and the laity, which is everybody, of course, um, only get 
the wafer mm-hmm. or the bread, right? And the suggestion is, I think we've talked about this already, of course, but um, that both the body and the blood are present in both the bread and the wine. So if you get right. one, you are getting both, right? So whereas you might read the original story of The Last Supper and assume that the bread was intended as the body and the wine as the blood, really it's sort of a more general metaphor, yes. I guess. And the interesting thing, of course, is that with transubstantiation specifically, um, that then that sort of suggests that you, you can't separate them. Right, so that just the mm-hmm. way the bo- your body has blood, that the wafer oh, sure. also has blood, and you can't have blood without the body. So somehow the chalice would also have. But of course, that is actually less important because the lady only get the wafer. So just the mm-hmm. important thing is to be like the lady get everything in the wafer. Right, it's not just body without blood that is not possible. You get both. The point is though, the lady don't get the chalice. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of practical reasons for that, right? Um, giving your whole congregation wine, you know, it's, you have to drink out of the same cup, blah, 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 right? Um, right. And also, it's only once a year, so whatever. Um, what ends up happening is that the moment of transubstantiation, the bell is rung, and that became the big thing when the Eucharist was raised above the priest's head, right? The, mm-hmm. That everyone would come see it. And so that becomes this the, the big moment for the laity is that, you know, every week you get to see it. You get to see Christ in person because of transubstantiation, right? Um, the Hussites are going to argue for the lay chalice. Okay. to say that the lady should get both the bread and the chalice, right? Bread and wine. Um, yeah, basically. And okay. that they should get to take communion more frequently, you know? Because so on the one not. hand, this feels very democratic and makes sense. On the other hand, having just come through a pandemic, I got to admit, the idea of sharing a cup of wine with, like, a hundred or more other people is a little bit concerning. Yes. Um, And, of course, during the pandemic, uh, the church did change the way they did things. Um, If you came in person, which, of course, for a while they were not doing, but then, Mm -hmm. or a lot of places weren't doing, but if you did... um, it was very specific. Like you, you did not get the chalice, and you were given. Um, and this, of course, isn't just Catholic. This is Protestant, you know, because you still only get the chalice in certain places. Um, you were like given the wafer carefully, you mm-hmm. know, like by gloved hand, and you took it. So usually they put it on your tongue, and you, that did not happen, yeah. right? So you sort of get, you took it and ate it yourself. Um, and that already is kind of a change because in a lot of ways, like you, you aren't supposed to touch it. Only the priest mm-hmm. is supposed to touch the body of Christ. That's more specific, of course, if you're Catholic and it really is the body of Christ. Obviously, Protestant and the Hussites aren't going to be part of this. Um, it is considered a metaphor. But, you know, there's still a sense of respect. You don't necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there are plenty of traditions, say, where you do take it yourself. But, you know, now everyone's like was like wearing gloves and stuff, right? So they, they did yes, there but yes, there were some alterations in the process for this exact yeah. reason. Yeah. Um I don't know if anyone did like little 
plastic cups with wine or something, you know, but yeah, like yes. you do it at a Friday night service where you yes. have like little, everybody gets their little thumbnail worth yes. of yes. Manischewitz. Yes, for kiddish. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, um, yeah, there were definite changes. Um, but um, this is sort of the, the point, right? So Huss, uh, yeah, there, you can see, right, the reform movement has really been growing um, for a while. I mean, right, and everyone's sort of adding their own thing, and people are a little bit different. But now with Wycliffe and then with Huss sort of on top of that, we are clearly moving towards, I mean, what will be Protestantism. Um in, in all of its sort of glory, right? Um, it's still, though, very political, right? Um, so this sense of, this is part of why it really gains a foothold, because there's the sense of it being a sort of way for the Czech um, clerics and laity to rebel <laughs> against the papacy, against the sort of, you know, German influence in the ecclesiastical, in the ecclesiastical hierarchy, um, it's a way to kind of maneuver their own their own rulers in various ways as well. Um, and so Wycliffe's ideas about a sort of secular authority above the church is definitely part of this. But there is also a sense of the secular authority. Um, if you want us on your side, you're going to need to side with us. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> like we will side with you against the Pope, but also like you have to side with us against the Pope. So there is this growing sense of political lines being drawn as well as religious lines. Um, and there start to be some real tension. So the Archbishop of Prague finally complains to the, the anti-Pope actually. So this is the, <laughs> the third Pope, right? We talked about the schism. So this is um, yes. Alexander V. He's in Pisa. Um, and uh, the Pope responds, 1409, we get a bull that condemns Wycliffe and Huss. Um, in 1410, Huss appeals to the new Pope in Pisa, that, who he's considered now not to have been Pope. Oh, he doesn't so, even get to be an anti-Pope. Right. Uh, he's that's just John sort of a non-entity. Yes. Okay. But this is the first John the Twenty-Third because I think that there's another one because it's decided that this one... Like, he didn't deserve the name. Yeah. So it hadn't been used yet. <laughs> didn't, wasn't he just prior to John Paul the first? Yes, but d- this is obviously not that one. <laughs> this is this, this is, is in 1410. Say, why do I know that? I can't even name all American presidents, I don't think. Like, yes. why do I know the order of popes? Yes. Um, okay. But yeah, yes. So, yeah. But that's why, because it was decided that he that that one was, was illegitimate completely, right? So, okay. Um, I mean, they're all, yeah, well, we're not going to get to that right now. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> um, okay, so Huss is then called to Rome by Pope Gregory XII, uh, refuses to go. <laughs> because, because that's not his guy, right? Right, but also because he knows what's going to happen. I mean, he could oh. be, be in trouble is what's going to happen. Um, okay. And so he not super into that because obvious reasons. Um, bad things can happen. <laughs> I mean, um, but, uh, so this is, okay. What happens is, um, the king agrees to protect him. This is, this is both King of Bohemia, right? Agrees to okay. protect Huss, or says that he'll protect us, and he does. Uh, and, um, because 
you know, he protects him from having to go. This stuff happens. The Archbishop of Prague actually ends up fleeing. All right. So um, at this point, uh, he's okay, right? Because local authority is um, protecting him. Hussites are really on a roll, <laughs> so to speak. Um, so, all right. Um, next up, <laughs> uh, Huss refuses to refute any of Wycliffe's ideas, even the ones he doesn't necessarily agree with. And in 1412, he's okay. excommunicated. Now, the reason he doesn't refute them is because he agrees with enough of them. He doesn't want to discount Wycliffeism, right? He doesn't want mm -hmm. to discount it or deny it. And he doesn't want to pick out the specific things he doesn't believe. And eventually he says that he's not going to refute the things he does believe. And he's not going to refute the things he doesn't because he never believed them in the first place. Okay. So to sort of say that you're refuting them is to sort of acknowledge that maybe once you believed them, but now you don't. Okay. Right. And so he, so, all right. So, uh, so he is standing on principle is the point. He is standing on principle. In 1412, he's excommunicated. Um, the Council of Constance is convoked. So we're getting another council. We can all, we all probably know what's going to happen, right? Um, Emperor, the Emperor, Sigismund, invites us to present his case. Um, he is promised safe conduct, but when he reaches Constance, he is imprisoned. Hmm. Yes. So it was a trap. It was a trap. Yes. <laughs> okay. It was a trap. Yes. Um, and he knew it was. Uh, he like wrote his will before he went and stuff like that. But he felt he had to go and, you know, make his case. Like I said, the same reason he sort of wasn't going to deny the things he didn't believe about Wycliffeism. Um, he's he's staking his claim. Um, okay. That was a bad choice of words, probably. He is holding on to his principles. Sure. Yes. All right. So he's interrogated. Uh, he's given an unfair, of course, public hearing. These things are never going to be fair. Uh, some Paris theologians, including Jean Gerson, who has showed up before as a villain in our work. Oh, yes. Yes. It's, I mean, he was a brilliant man, but he was not always a good guy, I guess, is the way to put it. Fan um, of um, Joan of Arc, though. Yes, he's a fan of Joan of Arc. Sort but of then, randomly. of course, it's too late. I mean, he's done yeah. so much to undo belief in women like her that it is too late but yes he he's french he does he believes in her but yeah okay um so yeah he's asked to abjure you know the wycliffeite articles in his work he says he can't abjure beliefs he never held he is condemned as a heretic in july 1415 so this is all the council of constance right uh he's stripped of his ecclesiastical vestments and he is burned outside the city ah so there you are okay um and the general sort of saying about Huss, right, is that he, because remember, Wycliffe is excommunicated but dies of natural causes, mm -hmm. and then after this, supposedly after all this, right, he is, like, dug up and, you know, burned, but whatever, but he got to, you know, he got to die in his own bed, basically. Um, yeah. And so there is this sort of real feeling at the time, and also from historians, right, that Huss is the martyr for this, right, that Wycliffe is the man for whom he went to the stake. Um, and that is true, even though also in some ways it kind of isn't, because he had his own beliefs and he was his own thing and his movement of Hussites, like that really is its own thing. But mm -hmm. yes, he does end up in a lot of ways getting burned really for Wycliffeism um, and his refusal to condemn it. So there we are. Um, the aftermath, there's a huge controversy over the late chalice um, and there are 
there starts some real sort of revolution and rebellion. Um, and this, right, frequency of communion, late chalice, um, and the German-Czech relationship really sort of drive the um, continued growth of this movement um, and sustain it. Right, so Hussites, Hussites will live on. And one of the reasons why a lot of them, or a lot, why not all of them, certainly, <laughs> uh, just become Lutheran, right? Because they, they have their own thing already, and it is being driven partly by sort of anti-German sentiment. Uh, and so becoming Lutheran isn't necessarily the thing you want to do if you're a Hussite, right? Um, so here we are. But anyway, so that's Huss. Um, and this tension really keeps going, right? So that was 1415. It is going to be, we're going to jump 100 years, right? Um, mm -hmm. To Luther, who, of course, all of this is going on, right? So Luther is, of course, and I say German, but we always mean German speaking because Germany is not a country, right? Um, so German speaking. Um, Luther is, of course, from German speaking lands. Um, he gets sent to Wittenberg, which is a brand new university. It is worth pointing out that in Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, <laughs> that he is at Wittenberg. And Hamlet, of course, is a student at Wittenberg. Mm -hmm. um, so this is England having fun with the fact that Wittenberg is, of course, seen as kind of the um, ground zero for the Reformation. <laughs> the Reformation. Right? Yes. Um, so Luther. All right. Martin Luther, he's 1483 to 1546. He starts out as an Augustinian. Um, he is concerned about salvation. We may or may not remember, but we talked about Wycliffe. One of the things that Wycliffe was not sure about, and by not sure about, I mean that he was against, <laughs> mm -hmm. was the idea of like prayers for the dead and such, right? That he did not think that right. this helped people out there in purgatory. He wasn't sure sort of what he thought about a lot of that, but definitely all this stuff about doing things to the dead. He's like, no, like if, you know, that, that's nonsense. You don't get people, like if people are paying for their sins, then they're paying for their sins. You don't get them out of it somehow. Um, and indulgences, same thing. Indulgences are ridiculous. You can't, like, pay money for something and then, like, get to commit a crime or have a crime, you know, and not have properly right. confessed or done penance, you know, that, yeah, you don't get forgiven for something just like that. That's ridiculous. You're just, you can't just buy your way into heaven. Okay. So, um, Luther is similarly concerned about all of these things. He is not sure about purgatory. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um... Same thing about prayers for the dead. Same thing about indulgences. He is really it seems like Jesus said something about rich men passing through the eye of a camel or something. Like that feels. <laughs> I feel like that's a famous enough part that even I've heard of it. Yes. Um, yeah, and this is of course where we get um, what will become. We talked before about sort of um, a lot of things that Wycliffe said, and then Huss as well. Things that aren't sort of in scripture, right? Mm -hmm. um, and eventually with Luther, we're going to get the beginnings of what is seen as sort of the Protestant take on scripture, which is to say, if it isn't there, then maybe it isn't true, right? <laughs> so no purgatory, no limbo, none of this stuff, right? It's not in scripture. Um, mm -hmm. No transubstantiation. It's mm -hmm. not in scripture. Sure. Right? It's a, it is seen as a sort of allegorical or metaphoric communion with Christ. Yes. Right? The same way he did it with his apostles. But not, mm -hmm. like, literal. Right. Yeah. Um, so the Mass is not a sacrifice. The Protestants very much um, 
we talked about this in like our first or second episode, but the idea of sort of cannibalism, right? The process. Yes. <laughs> this is, of we course, talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, it both is and isn't, of course. It's, but it is anti-Catholic propaganda from mm-hmm. Protestants to see it as cannibalism. Okay. Right? Um. So yeah. So Luther is about all of these things. I mean, he's interested in all these things, and he's concerned about the idea of salvation because he does feel that it's badly, basically badly defined by what we would say Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um, because how do you know if you're saved, right? How many masses do you have to say? Like, how many prayers do you have to do for penance? How, right? And you see why some people, mm-hmm. famously like certain women or, you know, various famous or religious figures who just prayed all day, that this can be seen a sign not just of devotion to God, which is usually how it's seen, but also of kind of like terror that nothing you do is going to be enough. Right. And Luther was not super into that. You know, he was like, you, that can't be, salvation can't be based on these kind of nebulous things. Because then, mm-hmm. you know, people who have to like work for a living, how are they possibly going to be saved? <laughs> right. right. Um, you should be saved if you are this doing This is your a plot best. of the good place, isn't it? 100% yes. Spoiler alert. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Um, but yeah, so you should be saved if you're going to be a good person. Okay. Right. Um, Fair like enough. if you are doing your best to be a good person, you know, and you, mm-hmm. yes, if you do something wrong, then you feel bad and you say you're sorry. But like, if you are doing your best to be a good person, then you should be saved. Right? Okay. Um, that That's the whole point. Like you can never make up for the sort of sacrifice of Christ, obviously. But that was sort of the whole point is that you, you, you can't. Mm-hmm. And you aren't supposed to be able to. That is why salvation is worth what it's worth. Right? <laughs> That's why it's worth a whole religion. Um, all right. So, um, yeah. He's super, Luther, right? Super against indulgences. Uh, clerical negligence, right? Um, all of these things. Um, untrue about purgatory. Transubstantiation is not in scripture. Um, vernacular translations, yes. He helps out with that. Um, so he's... Right, all these things we've seen before, he's very, very into. Um, it is worth pointing out, we mentioned he was rabidly anti-Semitic, um, it is also worth pointing out, we'll, we'll put that on the back burner for the moment, because we're talking about, you know, Protestantism <laughs> okay. of the Reformation. We'll come back to, we'll do an episode on more things like that. But um, he doesn't necessarily set about to create a new church or to create a schism, right? So this, in this way, he is unlike Henry VIII, who would very purposely break with the Pope, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that was the whole point, obviously. But Luther, and Henry VIII, of course, is doing this like in the 1530s. Um, Luther, who starts this out in 1517, um, is not quite as purposeful about that idea. But um, their fifth Lateran um, is convoked we talked about Lateran councils, right? So the fifth Lateran council, fourth Lateran was transubstantiation. This is fifth Lateran. Uh, it's convoked by Julius II um, and is continued then by Pope Leo X because, you know, it goes from like 1512 to 1517 and Julius dies. Anyway, um, they, it's supposed to deal with a lot of this stuff, with reform. It really doesn't. Um, Julius is busy waging war and gaining territory and kind of being a very secular leader in a lot of ways for Pope. Um, and so, anyhow, it does not solve problems. And basically, right, we've had this council, it doesn't solve the problems. And a few months after it's over, in 1517, Luther nails up his so-called 95 theses. 
right? Um, and yeah, that's that's the beginning, right? But uh-huh. he doesn't necessarily intend. I mean, there's no way he could have known mm-hmm. <laughs> that he was not going to be a reformer the way someone like Huss was a reformer. That instead he was going to end up causing an actual schism, <laughs> right? Uh, but he does, and of course, the real reason is again politics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that basically Germany, its secular leaders, have reached a point where they are no longer interested in being controlled by the papacy. Um, they are, for a lot of reasons, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, all the same reasons that Henry VIII, for example, right? They have their own politics. They don't want to be fighting the Pope's wars. They want to, don't want to be helping the Pope gain territory. They don't want to be helping the Pope fight against other people that maybe they want to be allies with. Mm-hmm. They're done. All right. So, um, they, you know, support him. They support Luther. And that's basically how things change, right? So you get what is known as the Diet of Worms. Worms being a place, of course. Diet meaning it's a, another word for like a legislative assembly. Legislative. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, legislative meeting. So yeah, a, a diet. <laughs> so this is the Diet of Worms. Um, Sorry, so Germany, but yes. it's a bad combination in English. I know. It's hilarious, though. It's very memorable. Anyway. Yeah, that's true. So this is 1521. Uh, Pope Leo X issues the Edict of Worms at the end that condemns Luther as a heretic. Um, and then that, of course, basically that's it. Um, because, you know, he's going to have too much secular support. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of the other things, of course, that Luther does is decide, once he realizes that he has enough support, that he maybe has chances at being more than just one of the reformers, but maybe he's going to be the reformer, um, and essentially create a schism, Um, he realizes that it's kind of up to him to set about the rules for his new church, right? (laughs) He doesn't quite put it this way, he doesn't I don't think he ever calls himself Peter, but you know, he's, he's definitely setting about to create his new church. Um, Did he call it Lutheranism or is that a word we gave it sort of after the fact? Everything's named after the person, you know, Hussites, Wycliffeites, Lutheranism. Yeah. Um, But, uh, you know, and people, whatever. I mean, at some point he realized pretty clearly that he was setting out the rules for how he wanted things to happen. Whether or not they were going to, and he was going to be a long-lasting church, he couldn't have known, but he certainly is setting out the rules he wants. Um, And some of those things include marriage. Um, So at one point, he helped some Cistercian nuns escape a monastery. Um, That's a sort of famous thing. Like, he sent Mm -hmm. in a herring merchant who frequently, apparently, delivered, like, fish to the monastery, and they, like, stuck out in the cart. Not in the barrels, uh, in the cart, presumably, but anyway... Uh, okay. And he finds, like, husbands for all of them, except one of them is this holdout. She is only willing to marry him or, like, his main other reformer friend. Um, and, of course, he ends up marrying her. Uh, that's uh, Katharina von Bora. Um, and they seem to have had a good marriage. Cool. Um, yeah, so they get married in 1525. They have their first kid a year later. They have a total of six. Not all of I think two of I think they have a total of six and four of them live to adulthood. That, that seems about... About right. Yeah. Anyway, um, I think she's like 26, 25, 26 when they get married, and he's 41. Um, but yeah, they have a good marriage. She is in charge of like their lands and stuff. Um, he makes her sole heir when he dies, but 
for various legal reasons, like she's sort of not allowed. But anyway, um, but yeah, so she, they yeah they have a good marriage, and she is cited frequently as kind of the um, model for, I mean, their marriage, and then her specifically as sort of um, how Protestant marriages should work, basically. Okay. Right, where she, you know, gets to have an opinion and say stuff and do stuff and yeah, you know. she she sounds like a personality. I yeah, mean, and she, you know, she had a brewery and she she sort of ran the land and all that stuff. So yeah, so she was cool. Um, so yeah, so there's all that, and this is sort of the um, general sense, right, of how Luther kind of gets it going, right? Because there has been this long-standing tension, right the politics that are already on the table. So like Bohemia, right? Czech versus Germany um, in Germany itself, right? Not wanting to be part of the papacy. Um, you know, all the stuff is on the table already. So he gets protected. Um, he is invited like to, um, you know, the council and the, you know, ruler, secular ruler uh, demands that he get safe passage there and back. Right, so that it not end the way it did with Huss, for example. Yeah. Um, so there is also a sense that um, the secular leaders decided, like, this was the moment. This is the guy. This is the moment. This is going to happen now. It's been happening. There have been mm -hmm. other chances, and, and this is going to be it, right? But you see, it's been building. Yeah, it feels like something has kind of changed about nations, the way they view themselves that um you suddenly you go i don't want my citizens to be servants of two masters or something yes. to sort of paraphrase something from ulysses um yes <laughs> and also of course the play yeah. goldoni servants right. of two masters um yeah no absolutely and this is um obviously right that's what henry does and the the thing is of course henry does it very specifically Right. Mm -hmm. So it the movement starts happening in Germany and Henry then Henry does it, right? So in some ways it starts in Germany. They're ready to go, but it's it's slower going, right? Right. Henry then just does it in England because he can. They're an island. Mm -hmm. What is anyone gonna do? I mean France and He England wants are to get divorced fighting. anyway. Yeah, and England yeah. and France are already always fighting. So like what's going to change nothing's going to change um and so in some ways then because henry just does it that then reinforces the fact that germany can also do it right <laughs> moment of like i'll have what he's having yes like so they start it but then henry kind of proves it can be done and then germany keeps going now the interesting thing of course is that england we do get civil wars we get religious stuff we get plenty of yeah fighting. there's a lot of death in the name of religion over the yes. following 200 yes. years yes the counter-reformation yeah. we get the council of trent which is sort of 1545 to 1563 um which is again right it's the yeah the counter-reformation council you get the wars of religion what are sort of generally known as that last forever until like sorry the counter-reformation is through 1648 not the council of trent um what did i say um and the council of trent is 1545 to 1563 um but yeah the counter-reformation lasts yeah, I mean, so 1517, basically, when Luther starts it, it's going to take a while for all the wars to start, but when they get going, mm -hmm. <laughs> they're going to last until, like, 1648. Um, 
so yes and that's on the continent i mean this is ignoring england which is going to have its own wars right so yes there's a ton of fighting um the 30 years war the setting for brecht's play mother courage and her children um 1618 to 1648 is of course one of them but there's there's a lot i mean there's everyone's just fighting and it just is this huge breakdown of stuff um and you know yeah it ends in 1648 but also of course the big mess you get i mean is kind of why eventually you get world war one you get all of these alliances to the point that the murder of this one guy can bring everyone else into this war right Mm -hmm. anyway so yeah so there's a giant giant mess um but in fairness there's a uh a big heap (laughs) (laughs) there is a big heap of murder killing wars in the middle ages as well over like heretics and crusades Mm -hmm. that's that right so it's just about things shift right political alliances shift belief systems shift the reasons people are fighting though don't exactly change but the geography like who they're fighting kind of shifts right this is why ultimately you get kind of orwell's 1984 um where there are like three territories and they're always fighting they're always allied with one and fighting the other but then so like the mm-hmm. next day they're the alliances have shifted but you're supposed to pretend they've actually always been fighting whoever they're fighting and allied with whoever they're allied with mm-hmm. it's kind of like that <laughs> you know there are huge shiftings of alliances and there are huge breakdowns and there's all this stuff but um at the same time you know um things things kind of do and don't change right mm-hmm. things change a lot and in other ways they kind of don't change at all and this is one of the things historians look at right there's macro history and micro history so um you look at the huge picture which is giant and messy but then you look like in any given small town Depending on the town you pick, some people might not notice what's going on for hundreds of years. Like, it might never bother them. Mm-hmm. Right? But a few miles away, that town might get destroyed every time an army troops through. Yeah. Right? So to them, it definitely matters. <laughs> but does it really matter who's fighting whom? Probably not. Right. Right? Like, if you're living in the, the, Alsace, or the, the Alsace-Lorraine region of France, where you might change hands between France and Germany yep. periodically... Uh, you might be noticing more than, you know, somebody who's sitting at the Sorbonne in yep. Paris. Exactly. Yeah. And this is why, of course, um, England, for all the, for all of the wars and the shifts and the changes, um, they are a nation state. There is a certain amount of stability in who they are after a certain period and mm-hmm. who they're fighting, right? <laughs> um, despite the civil wars. Um, and the stability is not taken for granted. There, a lot of times, they are desperately worried that terrible things are going to happen, but they don't always. They manage to get in the right king or the queen or whoever. You know, they they think there's going to be a huge revolution, but then there isn't, right? Um, and so there there manages to be this sort of sense of stability in some ways, um, also in parts of France that a lot of the rest of the European continent does not have. Right. And so today, like we talk about Bohemia, we mentioned Czech language. The Czech Republic, of course, today was Czechoslovakia um, and, you know, was behind the Iron Curtain and so on. Right. Um, and that it's just another reminder of sort of the, these shifts continue. Um, a lot of this politics continues, right? The EU 
has tried to stabilize a lot of it, but then you get Brexit, right? Because England sort yeah. of doesn't want to be under the auspices of Germany, right? The same way they left the yeah. papacy way back. So you do get this isolationist streak for England that can be that can be problematic for them. I mean, <laughs> um, also maybe for Europe, but more for them generally. I feel like John Oliver talked a little bit um, at one point about his inbuilt British antipathy for Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is it is funny because, of course, they had to keep inviting monarchs over from, you know. From Germany. <laughs> yes, like the Georges are German, right? Um, but yeah. Was the House of Hanover changed to the House of Windsor yeah. during World War I want to say during World War One, yeah, maybe World War Two, when it became unfashionable to be German. Yep, but you know they they had been right, um, and so yes, the the weird <laughs> mind games it takes to be like we will not be under the rule of Germany, but also by the way, our kings come from Germany. Yeah, yeah, there's some weirdness. Yes, I mean. Um, it is what it is. But <laughs> anyway, general point being, um, yeah, it, it is a huge mess and it, it really is a huge mess. And if you look at maps of the German speaking areas, particularly during the wars of religion, it is, it looks like Swiss cheese. Like the mm-hmm. colors, I mean, it's just a, <laughs> it's a giant mess. Um, but it, you know, it explains a lot of modern, um, a lot of modern politics is, is generally the point, right? This is sort of the reminder. There, there is a sense. So, um, yeah, the Reformation is heralded as this moment. It is an incredible moment. But some of the, the schism that it creates, it's not that it does anything worse than what had happened in the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages is also extremely splintered. But um, it does carry forward into the modern era in ways we might not realize, but should think about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there we are. Well, I like this because as a philosopher, the Middle Ages, if you were a philosopher, that had consequences. Yes. You could be burned at the stake. Like yep. right now, if Peter Singer writes an article about euthanasia, the worst thing that happens to him is like maybe some people on Twitter call him a jerk. Yep. And honestly, given the amount of attention most philosophers get, I think that's a positive result for him. Yeah. Because it means somebody read his article. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but Mm -hmm. here are people with real philosophical issues that they're grappling with, and they're getting in trouble, and they're getting excommunicated or martyred. We should point (laughs) out, Which, honestly, probably not fun, but, you know, it's a result. Speaking of... um philosophers medieval philosophers uh today is actually june 7th this will be posted in like six months but today is june 7th <laughs> and a week ago on june 1st um is the anniversary of marguerite Perret, in fact being burned at the stake so one of our yeah. awesome brilliant philosophers yeah so um there we are yeah yes well on that note i think we <laughs> should call it a night yes all right well thank you for joining me and thank you to everyone for listening you can join us on Twitter and uh, tweet with us at Ask a Medievalist. And we have a Facebook page under the same sort of name and a website, which is askamedievalist.com. We post show notes. 
Uh, we sometimes link to important articles. We do all sorts of things. You can contact us there, and you can contact us at the email address questions at askmedievalist.com. Um, you can review us on Apple Podcasts or just, like, put some stars somewhere in our honor. I don't know. Uh, have fun with it. And uh, have a great, it'll probably be a fall by the time this comes out, but I hope you had a great summer and keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. Thank you.